Indeed, happy Mother's Day, moms, grandmoms in the room. Excited for you. Uh, hope that your families have good things planned for you. You know, I was thinking about Mother's Day, I think about uh, at the end of Paul's letter, he has this list of imperatives and commands for the church as they live together. He says, amongst a bunch of other things, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And, you know, in the context, it's, it's not necessarily those two things happen in different occasions or different occurrences, particularly within the covenant community of God's people. And I think there's an important pastoral point for us on Mother's Day and Father's Day in particular. You know, perhaps Mother's Day for you is really hard. Maybe as a young family, family planning hasn't gone, gone the way that you thought it would. Or maybe like our family this year, this is the first Mother's Day that you're celebrating without your mom or your mother, mother-in-law or grandmother. Or perhaps it's even harder than that. Maybe your mom wasn't awesome and it's a, it's a tense relationship or it was a hard relationship. I think it's in that vein that this idea of this morning, celebrating, rejoicing with those who rejoice, being so grateful for you as moms and grandmothers, but also mourning with those who mourn. And to say explicitly to you this morning, if that's you, that as a church family, we're with you. We know that it's hard, and you're on our hearts as well. You know, this whole idea of, of walking together through hard and trying and wonderful circumstances is kind of what we've been about in the book of Ephesians as we've talked about covenant community. Uh, by the way, before I, I uh, kind of recap, I just want to remind you that if you attend here regularly, you call GBC your home, make sure you're listening or watching this series. If you missed one, go back on our YouTube page, or our app, website, whatever, and make sure you catch it. It's important to get all six. But we began the series a couple weeks ago uh, with an outside voice, Nate Parks from Berea Ministries, challenging us with the notion of that we're to be committed to church because the church, from Ephesians 1, the church is a body. And Paul expounds on this idea quite a bit in 1 Corinthians 12 uh, when he actually uses the metaphor of a body. It says, the hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. There's an utter interdependence in the body of Christ, Paul says. And then last week, Pastor Zach came with Ephesians chapter 2 with this idea that the church is a temple. It's a new kind of temple. And this image that God is building out of all of us, this beautiful, glorious whole that glorifies and honors him. And he does that out of our individual, the bricks, if you will, out of our, uh, of our individual redeemed and regenerated lives through faith in Jesus Christ. The church is a temple. This morning's metaphor, we're on Ephesians chapter 3, is a little bit more abstract. It's the most abstract of all six of the metaphors. It's that the church is a mystery. And a little bit more accurately, the church is a revealed mystery in the text. And so uh, excited to unpack. Ephesians 3 is a great chapter. And so really excited to lean into it with you all this morning. Before we do so, as is our custom, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our God and Father, this morning, uh, we're humbled to be able to approach your word. God, we thank you that it's so readily available. We thank you that we can come as a people, whether GBC is our church home or whether we're visiting, and we can open your word, we can glean something from it. Holy Spirit, would you be our instructor this morning, our teacher, and even our comforter this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Paul's letter to uh, the Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at uh, these three big ideas that, that uh, there is a revelation, there's a prayer, and there's a wonder uh, that we see in the text here. So Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 2 and read just a few verses. Paul says, you have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you. 
this mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. And I want to stop there. Paul, Paul writes and he says, uh, God's given me this revelation. He's, he's revealed to me some of the mystery of, and we'll talk about in just a moment, that, of what was unknown in the Old Testament to give to you that I've already written about in the previous two chapters, primarily in chapter one, but really in the, in the earlier part of the letter. And, and so he continues here, Verse 4, he says, By reading this, by reading this letter, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partakers or partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul unveils this idea that he's been given a revelation, the revelation of this mystery, and namely it's that Jews and Gentiles are, he'll make the point, together, together, together. So let's look first and let's define the word mystery, and then we'll look at the content of this revealed mystery, and then we'll look at the reason for it. First, a mystery, Paul, we could say that Paul says is the, he says it's the administration of God's grace it's, it's the administration of God's private, wise plan that he's kind of had in, in motion since before time began. Uh, another way to, to define it is it's the implementation of a strategy, i.e. God's strategy, his, his program, his plan that he kind of rolls out through Christ, uh, if you will. And it's, it, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, if you've been with us, that a, uh, another way to say it is that a mystery in the New Testament is something that is uh, either partially or fully concealed in the Old Testament times from the prophets, even Peter says from the angels, but that has been revealed either partially or fully in the New Testament. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. God has given me the revelation, further knowledge of the mystery of God in Christ, namely that Gentiles and Jews are one in Christ. And so we have in this, uh, the church being the capital C church, but expressed in the local church, being the administration of God's grace, we have what I've, I'd call the three sins of Ephesians 3. Now, not S-I-N-S, like doing bad things and rebellion, but S-Y-N-S, the Greek prefix that means together. We don't quite as, uh, see it as so much in the, in the version I read this morning. Listen to it in the NIV. Paul says that here's the content of the mystery. This mystery is that through the gospel... The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Now, I think it's a little bit hard for us to grasp here in 2022 in the West how uh, uh, earth-shattering, unexpected, stunning this statement was from Paul to the Jewish believers, that is, Jewish believers in Jesus, Jewish Christians. It, it, now, they understood from the time of Abraham, particularly beginning in Genesis 12, verse 3, and then Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, that all nations on earth were going to be blessed through Abraham's descendants. They knew that God's plan was to bless the world through the people of Israel. M most Jews would have known through the prophets like Isaiah that, that the Gentiles would turn to God and be saved at some point. That would have been known and expected. But this idea of mutuality, this idea of, uh, of complete equality, of equal footing morally, that was unexpected. That was earth-shattering. Paul is dropping a bomb the Jews and Gentiles are in organic unity with one another, as one scholar put it. This is profound. We have to understand, uh, we've talked about before, the, the nature of the divides between Jews and Gentiles. 
in terms of customs and language, and, and certainly for most of Israel's history, God's worshiped. And from the Jewish standpoint, it's kind of like in the parable where Jesus talks about the parable of the workers. It's kind of like those that come at the 11th hour and get paid for the whole deal, right? The Jews have some gripes here. And so Paul is helping this church to understand that. So he does that in three ways. He lists three things that they are together, together, together in. He says, number one, they're co-heirs in the same inheritance as you. First Peter talks about this in detail. Right, that, that Jew and Gentile, like, they now are worthy, if you will, through the blood of Christ, of the same inheritance. He says they're members of the same body. When Paul uses that body language, hand, foot, ear, eye, he's not just talking about Jewish believers, but all peoples. Again, earth-shattering. Finally, and this one might be the most shocking, that they're co-members together in the promise. That is the promises to God's people through Abraham and, and the patriarchs. Galatians 3, Paul expounds on, on this idea uh, quite a bit as well. And so Paul is helping the Jewish believers to understand that God is doing something new in giving the church. The church is this mystery reveal. It's a gift that God brings together those that, as we said last week in our intro to the morning, this group of people, even here at Groton Bible Chapel, that I probably wouldn't hang out with some of you if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus. That whole notion, right? God brings together a, a very unique group of people both globally and in the local church. Well, what's the reason for this ministry, or this mystery, rather? You know, Paul says in verses 7 through 11, he says that God has given him this sort of mantle, making this mystery known, and he says this, that the unsearchable riches of Christ are now given to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. In other words, Jesus is the prize, Jesus and the unsearchable riches of Christ is in his unfathomable, unfathomable majesty is something that those that have become Jewish believers in Jesus probably had a deeper understanding of because of their Jewish background. And now Paul says that same thing is come to Gentiles. Some of you were here a few weeks ago and we had Nanette Burdick on stage explaining the depth of the meaning of the Passover when one comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and so there's a sense in which the Jews would have had a deeper understanding, but in terms of the inheritance, being members of a body, and the promises of God, there, again, the Gentiles are co-equal. Well, what is the reason? Paul says it in verse 10. So that God's wisdom may be made known through the church according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of your translations of the Bible will say God's manifold wisdom or God's multifaceted wisdom. God's explosive wisdom, wisdom, if you will, is actually revealed in the church. And the text actually says, to the heavenly beings, to the celestial. It's as if in 1 Peter chapter 1 and here in Ephesians, God is saying that, that when, the, when God has given us the church, that the angels themselves marvel at it that God can bring together anybody. It's a, it's a powerful image. Now, we know that when Christ was born, when God came in the flesh, Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. When God comes in human flesh, that the angels burst forth in song. It's a similar notion here. This is the thing that we've been championing over the last couple of years, uh, particularly as our country has struggled about the nature of racial tensions in our country. 
We talked about the fact that as pastors across black, white, uh, Hispanic, Asian lines, that we were, we were immediately in conversation saying, shoot, we missed an opportunity here. Because we have a unity the world is desperate for, is trying to kind of conjure and make up that we already have. And, and in this community, in this area in particular, we already have deep friendships that go back decades, and we haven't been taking advantage of that. We haven't been displaying for the world, hey, the thing you're looking for is found only in Christ. Now, subsequently, we've done some things together, and it's been a, a term, it's just been so much fun. And I think for sure, we're seeing even in our community, people wonder about this whole unity that we have in Christ that supersedes any of our categories that, uh, that distinguish us. It's a very uh, profound thing to the, to the Jews here. The church is the mystery of God revealed. It's the administration of his grace. It's the wonder of his plan. A possible illustration here that we'll probably get about, well, I don't know what percentage of you, but if I were to talk about the unity that happens between the Mau Mau's and the bishops, anybody have any idea what I'm talking about? No, not one. So you've got to be probably 50 or older. You see, this is the 50th anniversary of the movie The Cross and the Switchblade, which I watched the other day for the first time. Oh, I got one in the back here. Uh, I watched the other day, and it's it's pretty cheesy Christian movie, okay? Even though it's sort of a classic. But the story of the cross and the switchblade is about a Midwestern, I think Western Pennsylvanian preacher who comes to New York City and enters into gangland in New York City. It's a true story. And he enters into gangland in two rival gangs, the Mau Mau's and the, and the bishops. And he begins to preach go- the gospel to them. He, he does not give up. And most famously, uh, in Nicky Cruz comes to faith in Jesus. And then rival gang members come to Jesus. And that group of people plants what is now known today as Times Square Church. And that pastor named David Wilkerson starts a ministry that Groton Bible Chapel has partnership with today called Teen Challenge. It's a powerful story of exactly what Paul... I mean, these are two groups of particularly young men in this city, in tenement housing, New York City in the 1970s, who absolutely hated and killed each other. Christ brought unity. It's a beautiful thing. The church is a mystery revealed. And, and so one of the big points of application for us to wrestle with here, if this is the kind of unity that comes to the church and is expressed in the local church, why is it so often, and I'll just speak for myself at times throughout my life, that my, my, my commitment to the local church is kind of last on a laundry list of other commitments? You know, I saw this a lot as a youth pastor. I was in uh, youth ministry here at GBC for, for 22 years, 10 of them as a full-time staff members. So I saw it from both the volunteer side and as paid staff. When I was excited about something that we were headed into as a youth group, you know, particularly in the midweek program, I would get kids who kind of responded this way. They'd say like, yeah, um, I'll be there if I, if I don't have any homework or I don't have practice that night or if my family's not up to anything or, or if I'm not busy with something with my friends. Well, yeah, then I'll be there. And folks, that's a learned behavior. Now, I don't want to be dismissive. I think as Christians, we have even more of a mandate to honor our commitments, right? So if, a, if a, one of our children makes a commitment to a, a sports program or drama or whatever it is, there is a tension in like being committed to those programs. But in the church, I think if we're honest, the local church often is the last of the things that we commit ourselves to, perhaps. So here at Grand Bible Chapel, you know, we've talked about, we've been wrestling with this idea of what is covenant community and what is covenant partnership? It's the word we've, cho- we've chosen to describe it. What is it? What are we called to, mandated to by scripture? What are the, so what's the irreducible minimum, if you will? We've kind of landed on four things. 
Uh, by the way, we preached on these four things in the fall of 2020. That series is available for you to watch or listen to. In fact, I'll stick the link in tomorrow's email, which, by the way, by the way, if you don't, if you go here, GBC's your home church, and you don't get the Monday email, please go on our website or the Welcome Center. Get yourself signed up for that. But I digress. Uh, come back here uh, for a second. What are the four things? We're committed to worship together, right? We're committed to, and maybe this is a little bit of a duh, right? We're a church. We gather to worship together, and we do that frequently. We think that's one of the irreducible things that we're committed to. Number two, we're committed to serve one another. I'm committed to or called to learn what my spiritual gift is and then pour myself out for the sake of you and, and likewise and, and vice versa. We're committed to serve. Number three, we believe we're, we're called to, uh, to give to the work of God in the local church. Now, the principles for giving are in the New Testament. We see them mostly in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Beyond that, as a church, we don't, dictate how or when or frequency or any of that, but just that we, we see in the New Testament, we're called to be involved in supporting the work of God's kingdom through the local church. And then the last, the last one, irreducible minimum for us, that uh, we're not just called to pour ourselves out and to give, but we're also called to feed, to grow, to be sharpened and shaped, if you will, by the community. So that might take place in one-on-one -on -one discipleship. It might take place in Bible study or small group, but we are called to be committed to worship, serve, give, and grow. And again, much more content on that from the scripture if you go on our website. And so those are the things we're, we're asking us, each one of us, to kind of wrestle through as we continue in this series. The church is a mystery revealed. It's something that uh, placards the wonder of the wisdom of God, even before the angels in heaven. Well, the next place that, that Paul goes is he then moved, it, he's so moved by what he's teaching the Ephesian believers here that he moves into a prayer. And in verse 14, it says that he, uh, for this reason, he says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. Paul, the, the custom of Jews at this time would be actually to stand in prayer. And so Paul is saying something about his passion and his the sense of urgency and desire he has for the church at Ephesus in the fact that he kneels before the Father. But listen to the depth of the content of his prayer. We're going to begin in verse 15. He says, I pray that he, that is God the Father, may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love. And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, can I just tell you, there's like five sermons in there. We're not going to be able to unpack everything that's in that prayer. It's amazing. I mean, it's one of Paul's, uh, you know, famous run-on sentences, which I really like because that's kind of how I write. Um, and certainly how I think. But his prayer, his drive is to pray that we would be strengthened together. And I want to note a couple things about the, this prayer. First, the source of the prayer. He says he kneels before God the Father uh, who according to the riches of his glory that he, that is God the Father, may strengthen you with might through the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts. In other words, the source of that strengthening is not me like conjuring up and you know, sort of grabbing myself by my bootstraps or whatever picture you want to picture there. No, it's, it's God the Father, it's the Holy Spirit moving, and it's the indwelling of the Son of Christ. In other words, Paul's paying a, praying a Trinitarian 
prayer. That the very Godhead would be at work in knitting us together. And by the way, he moves from the individual to the collective. That, that, that God would do that strengthening collectively of the local church. That's the source of the strengthening. What are, what are the results of the strengthening? Well, it's a host of things that Paul wants us to excel or exceed uh, from previous and greater fellowship, greater love, greater comprehension of God's love, greater knowledge, uh, understanding the love of Christ beyond knowledge, greater filling, greater power, greater praise, so on and so forth. And all of those graders, if you will, are wrapped around an uh, in, uh, in intimacy and understanding of the love of God expressed through Jesus Christ. In his teaching on this passage, uh, Dr. Dave Reed of Growing Christians Ministries takes each one of those dimensions and kinds of explode, kind of explodes it through questions looking at, at additional scripture. Uh, and I want to share that with you in a minute, but I, I do want to make a resource note here. It's been a while since we've mentioned from the platform. Uh, if you're looking for a, a, a really accessible Bible study resource, I can't recommend enough growingchristians.org. GrowingChristians.org. Uh, Dr. Dave Reed was a Bible school professor who retired to this area and taught the Bible. He actually, before he went home to be with the Lord, uh, recorded the entire scripture in 15-minute segments. Super accessible. There is probably rarely a sermon uh, that, that I preach from this pulpit where I haven't at least gotten his take on a passage. So it's great resource. There's my plug, by the way. Uh, Dave's uh, widow, Margie, still attends here. His grandkids, uh, his son, Ron and Erica. Uh, Ron continues to maintain the website. So uh, just a, a faithful ministry and a great resource for us as we study God's word. And so I want to give you Dave's sort of like the way he explodes the multidimensional nature of God's love in Christ. This is what is the breadth, and the, the descriptor's a little different because he's using the New American Standard uh, Bible. He says, what is the breadth of God's love? It's the world, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. What is the length of God's love? It's forever. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never ends. And this is not a generic word for love here in 1 Corinthians 13. It's the agape, self-giving, sacrificing love of God expressed in the famous, famous chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13. What is the depth of God's love? It's the cross. In Philippians 2.8, where it says that he, that is Jesus, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. The woeful depths of the cross, death on the cross. Finally, what is the height of God's love? It's heaven itself, it's eternity. 1 John 5.13 says that you may know that you have eternal life. Paul's prayer is that we would understand the love of God in a way he says it in the text that even surpasses knowledge. And in these graders, what he's praying for the church is our strengthening, that we know the love of God, essentially that we'd be mature in Christ as a people. That we would be mature in Christ. So I want to ask two questions this morning. First question, what is your spiritual center? What is the spiritual center of your life? You know, we live in a time, and particularly with Gen Z that's coming up, where all of a sudden, the idea of spiritual things is an open topic. Like, Gen Z is very interested in talking about spiritual things. That's a, that's a real positive. There's an openness to learn about the Bible and who Jesus is and talk about God. The negative of that is they're open to kind of all kinds of spiritual ideas and concepts and so on and so forth. And so some real discernment needs to come into our conversation. So I want to ask you, what is your spiritual center? It might be something associated with some spiritualism associated with like yoga that you practice. 
Right? It might be uh, somebody that you, uh, a blogger or a TikTok or somebody you watch on TV, do people watch stuff on TV, right? right? Somebody that you aspire to, some spiritual leader. It might be a, a set of values or principles to which you try to adhere. It might be a host of things. What Paul says right in this middle of this passage is what the Bible advocates is to be our spiritual center, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul says earlier that the Gentiles are one with the Jews uh, through, uh, in Christ through the gospel. And so far be it from us this morning or any morning to, answer, to not answer the question, what is the gospel? The gospel is the entire message of the Bible that Paul is talking about here, that God sent his son come as a baby, and that Christ entered the world and walked this life and categorically faced everything that we face, yet without sin or without rebellion, but even more than that, fully fulfilling the law is the sort of redundant nature of the language of the scripture. And so not only did he not sin or transgress or rebel as we do, but he also was completely fully obedient to everything that the scriptures lay out as the standards of God himself. And then he went to a Roman cross. And Jesus hung on a Roman cross, as we've already talked about in Philippians 2. He faced the most horrifying death, such a horrifying death that it's where we get the word excruciating, which means from the cross. That's a word that came from Christ's death on the cross. But it wasn't just the physical death. It's that in that moment for you, Jesus received in himself the punishment, the full wrath of God, the penalty, the punishment, the judgment that you and I deserve was poured out on the Son. And then he died, but he did not stay dead. He rose from the grave. And because Jesus rose from the grave, which was the, the Father's sort of validating stamp of approval and sufficiency of what was given on the cross, we then, by trusting vicariously, if you will, in what Jesus did for us on the cross, we can have a relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, and life eternal, everything we've been talking about this morning. That is the gospel. And so I ask you explicitly this morning, what is your spiritual center? may be that everybody in this room or even online that would be able to say that Jesus is the spiritual center of my life. Maybe there are things in your life that have entered in that aren't Christ that need to get trimmed out. Second question is to those of you who've been walking with Jesus for a while, that Christ is your center. Those descriptors that Paul uses, greater fellowship, greater intimacy, greater comprehensions of God, comprehension of God's love, greater praise, Greater, uh, all those greaters, do they describe, could you say that, that that progression is happening in your life through your fellowship here at Groton Bible Chapel? In other words, how are we doing at that? Is that happening here? These are questions that we need to ask as we consider Paul's prayer for strengthening. So Paul has said, there's a revelation. We're together, together, together. He prays a prayer that we would be strengthened. And finally, he ends with a wonder that is God's glory seen in the church. The last two verses of chapter three are a beautiful doxology where Paul writes, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, which he described uh, in a few verses earlier that we talked about, uh, to him, that is to God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, why is that a wonder? Beyond the fact that it's elevating, uh, you know, beautiful language, why is that a wonder? God's glory in the church. 
We know there's this kind of interesting nuance in the text. First of all, Paul ends this section of Ephesians with a doxology. He began Ephesians uh, in the earlier part of chapter 1 with a doxology. So he's kind of wrapping up these thoughts with this declaration of praise to God. And he says to him, to God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And the way it reads in the English is almost like uh, an afterthought. Oh, and in Christ Jesus as an addendum, if you will. God's glory in the church. And actually, this has caused a little consternation through the centuries in Bible translation. And that's where we see the real wonder of it. Uh, this past week, if you were on our social media, or if you go there after today, you'll see Pastor Zach posted a short video uh, talking with a local apologist and talking about uh, textual variants and understanding how the Bible came together. This is one of these texts, Ephesians 3.21, where there are textual variants. And the variant is actually specifically in the order of Christ in the church. Let me read you a footnote uh, from one of the commentaries. It says this. In other words, some Bible translators have effectively said, shouldn't Jesus be listed first? To him be glory in Christ Jesus and in the church. And in the original language, and Paul's emphasis here is no. The original language says in the church. And why is this a wonder? Well, as one scholar put it this way, he said this. He said, the honor of Jesus is in the hands of the church. Paul is ordering it this way very much on purpose as he's exhorting the Ephesian church, as he exhorts us as a local church, and he comes to this doxology, this great and beautiful uh, anthem of praise. He says, to him be glory in the church. The honor of Christ is in our hands. Oh, my goodness. It's powerful. It is a wonder that the world be able, would be able to see the glory of God in the church. And so we have to ask the question, if that is true, then what is implied about our commitment to each other? How ought we be, to be committed to each other? I was talking to Amber about um, if yesterday. One of the things she said that was just super encouraging was she saw expressions of community life all throughout the, the day as women were just caring for each other, even getting to know each other first time, the, for the first time. Saw the fleshing out of this kind of idea. Growing up in my house, uh, you know, as we would leave the house for some new endeavor or something significant, I can remember my father saying something like, hey, remember who you represent. You represent this family, but you represent the Lord. And we could say that to each other. When we leave here, when we do our body life that we talked about in week one, remember who we represent. Yeah, we represent that silly green circle. But more than that, we represent the Lord Jesus Christ. The honor of Jesus is in the hands of the church. 